All right, real quick, people, before we get into today's show, we've just released a new course, Periodization for Periods, all around how to train women around their monthly cycle, and we've got it on special. If you're interested, click the link in the show notes. You are now listening to the Fitness Education Online Podcast, the podcast where fitness professionals go to grow their fitness business. If you're in the fitness industry, you'll find tips and strategies from proven business experts. Now, let's start the show. Okay, guys, Travis here from Fitness Education Online, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. Very excited today. Another guest. Uh, we always love having guests because we always get to learn some great bits of information. But as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Craig. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be back making another wonderful ep- uh, episode of Bro Science, where we get an opportunity to chat to interesting people and discuss all things uh, fitness and uh, and health and education. So, Craig, I'm going to throw it over to you. Do you want to introduce our guest for today? Yeah, definitely. We're really lucky today. This is... um. Uh, this is an individual who I've actually uh, was put onto through my professional life working within the military. It's um, uh, Rachel Vickery is joining us today. She is a high performance uh, consultant uh, who has a background in elite sports, grew up in New Zealand as an elite gymnast, uh, went on to study physiotherapy, and then has taken, like many of our guests, a bit of a, a different path to her current career and now works uh, mainly all around uh, everything about optimizing breath and optimizing performance, uh, including consulting across a wide domain of um, high stress environments. So she's consulted through to medical professionals, surgeons operating uh, in high stress situations, first responders, special forces, uh, corporate, elite sports, you name it, no doubt she's been involved. And we were very, very lucky to uh, to be able to have her joining us after what was somewhat of a, a torturous uh, process to sync things up. But uh, thank you so much, Rachel, for for finally being here on uh, on an episode of Bro Science. Thank you for that kind of intro, Craig, and and thanks, Travis. Also, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for your patience and perseverance pulling us together. Nah, absolute pleasure. One one thing before we jump in, it's funny Craig mentioned uh, your background with physio. You. We've got a, we've had a few people in here who have come through as physios and have actually gone on and changed that career path uh, after a few years. I just I mean if you if you're happy to dive into it br- briefly, what um what was sort of the catalyst to go from physio into sort of this high performance coaching world that you're in now? Mm, I think for me I was I always wanted to be a physio since I was an elite gymnast because we had such great physios that kept us together as, as gymnasts. Um, and I think the, my experience as an athlete meant that once I was actually working as a physio, um, I was seeing quite a lot of things that were falling through the gaps in terms of, you know, medicine is quite a, a solo um, a silo approach often, which mm. means that you stick with very much within your lanes and your professional boundaries, as is appropriate to do so. Um, but the downside of that is sometimes there are some big, you know, gaps between where someone's professional boundaries finish and where someone else's potentially start. Um, meaning um, that there are a lot of people that I was seeing in clinic, and particularly at the time, I was working between two clinics. So one where I was working as a sports physio with. Um, aligned with New Zealand Sports Academy. So I was seeing high-end athletes 
And then a couple of days a week, I was working in a, in a private practice um, specializing in breathing related problems. So panic attacks, burnout, anxiety, that side of things. So it's very much non-athletes. Um, but what I found pretty quickly was I was actually seeing a lot of the same stuff. But if I walked into the sports physio clinic, I walked in with those blinkers on. And then if I walked into the other clinic, I had those blinkers on. And I was actually completely missing quite a lot of stuff that people were just getting failed, I guess, by traditional, you know, medical approach, not just by myself, but, you know, across the board. Um, so I think that combined with, I've always just had this um, real interest and um, mm, gift sounds like a, like a wanky word, but, you know, kind of, you know, about, about seeing the deeper stuff going on for someone, you know what I mean? And in terms of the human, the humanness, it's the, it's the behind the performance. And I think human behavior has always fascinated me, um, and particularly humans in high pressure environments. So that was kind of what led me kind of down this very waffly road to end up, I guess, basically where I am. Yeah, that's uh, it's really interesting because as, as Travis said, um, one of, uh, one of the other episodes we had, we had an uh, Olympic, uh, a weightlifter who was a physio and, and found the same thing that he was working in the gym training, identifying these problems, seeing them when he was wearing his physio hat versus when he was wearing his, his training hat and, and realizing there was a real, um, there, there was real sort of blind spots on, on how these issues overlapped. And, and I've said it myself and, and Travis loves um, throwing me as a GP and my GP colleagues under the bus. And, and I'll be the first to admit it, a lot of my experience around um, sports and exercise medicine and, and performance-based stuff and, and all those things have, have come from my personal experience rather than from my training. And mm. it's, it's so true. And we're seeing a lot of people uh, in the health um, sort of sphere who, you know, there's obviously the important structured pathways for us to become trained and understand the sort of the framework that we operate in and what the evidence shows and, and all this sort of stuff, but, but understanding the nuances of different roles, different understandings. Uh, it, it seems that that really comes from, from having had that experience. And it sounds like you were really formulated by your experience in, in the, the elite sport pathway from a very young age. Um, mm. And uh, I, I, um, I found that I was sort of, you know, imprinted from my very non elite sport pathway from a young age um, but you, you find that you sort of learn from those experiences uh, and, and it really shapes where your, where your practice comes from. And, it, and it's quite interesting, as you sort of say, that you, you often you put these hats on and these roles and, and it's trying to work out, well, you know, maybe, maybe this person doesn't necessarily need me to, to provide this, this physio guidance. And, and it's really interesting. We've chatted to a few different allied health sort of fields as well. And there, there often is that bit of a blurring of, you know, in an environment, especially in like an elite sport environment or a, a collaborative team care environment, people get a bit sort of edgy about when you start to sway out of your lane to, to different things. So being able to take a bit more of a holistic approach can kind of take the, the shackles off in a certain extent and, and really allow you to actually engage with people and, and help them a little bit more. Um, mm. I, I, I would say we're a bit lucky as, as doctors that there's still this little kind of aura that we're some kind of wizard that kind of knows a little bit of everything and we probably get a little bit more leeway in that and i've found in my career um lots of people come to you with all sorts of problems that i have no chance of solving uh, and just assume that i can somehow address it as the doc um so yeah it's really interesting that you've sort of found that path and it, it really yeah. it, you know it mirrors plenty of other conversations we've had Trav. 
I think I sorry to cut to you you're gonna to try to trap just just then. I think I heard a fantastic expression and I wish I could remember who told me because it was awesome. Is that lanes are for learner drivers, but Formula One drivers don't need lanes. Do you know what I mean? And I just thought actually that's actually really true. Um and because you know, if you think about it too, and I, what drove me, I think, for getting to, away from more that traditional physio is was two things. One, I think medicine by necessity is often very reactive it's mm. it's you know fixed broken um and fixed broken doesn't actually align with you know the uh, philosophy and, and, and high performance which is let's not fix broken let's create awesome and those two things aren't actually as easy you know they're, they're actually quite different just by default just by fixing broken doesn't necessarily give you awesome mm. so what that means is you often have to be very proactive and you actually have to front load a whole lot of stuff um, and what I would often find as a physio is people would walk in the door expecting that they were coming to see a physio. So they already had in their mind what I was, what they thought I was going to do with them. Um, because I'd pigeonholed that because of their expectation of mm. that professional label. Um, and certainly I found, you know, being able to get the results with people by stepping away from that. Now, the downside of that, of course, is I have to, I can't do what I do under the umbrella of professional, um, you know, from professional title as a physio, which mm. means it's quite funny. I step away with, you know, 20 years credibility as a high performance sports physio. And in the other world, you know, I had, actually was on field um, with the storm, uh, talking to the storm psychologist uh, last season, I think. And we'd worked together for about three or four seasons. And it wasn't until three or four seasons in that she realized I was actually by qualification, a sports physio, we just actually never had that conversation. She just thought I was a performance coach, you know, which straight away changes people's perception around credibility and all of those sorts of things, which is quite interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing, again, it's so funny that we have this conversation with with so many different people and so many of the same things come up with uh, with that, like, fix broken. You know, it's, it's this thing, like, if you're coming into a physio, why are you going to the physio? You've rolled your ankle, you've busted your knee, you've done this, you've done that. A lot of it's about just getting you back on the field or getting you back out doing whatever it is you're doing, you know, like gen pop could be anything, you know, right? It's A lot of it's not necessarily about getting back better for, for mm. a lot of people. It's, it's, it's just about getting back. Mm. And, and I think that's a really important message that we, we miss. I think, and I think as personal trainers, we're lucky that, a lot of our job is maybe a bit more proactive than than reactive with where we're at. Um, you know, maybe it's a bit reactive. People who want to come and lose weight and stuff like that, I suppose. But it, but it just becomes a bit more of a proactive message of improving health compared to say a GP or, or a physio, where it's almost exclusively I'm coming to you because I'm broken. I'm coming to you because I need help. Mm, yeah, for sure. And and I just have this passion too of working with really good people who are doing really difficult and important things where the pressure is really high. Um, you know, I just gravitate to that personality type and to those stakes. Um, and um, and I think for those people, you know, average and just making par is not good enough for their performance arenas. You know, they, they are driven for everything has to be awesome and excellent in what they're doing. So on that, I'd love to throw over a little bit based on a few stories that I've heard from, from yourself on a few podcasts based on working with high performance, elite things. A lot of it, um, you know, when people maybe aren't performing to where they would expect, visiting sports psychologists, thinking it's a lot of it's mental. What do you find your role as a high performance coach 
is it all exclusively working mental stuff? Is it exclusively working this? What, what is your sort of role on that holistic approach? Yeah, it's it's very it is very holistic, and I'm very upfront with people to say I am not a I'm not a psychologist, so we put that right on the table right from the get go. Um, I, I look at it a lot more though, driven from uh, the physiological stress response. So basically, that you know that hard coding that every single human has at a really primal level that says when we're in an environment which is outside our comfort zone or we perceive that there's a threat there's a certain body response that we all have and we can we can obviously go into that you know um shortly if, if you want to go into some of the details of that but the philosophy that i see and it doesn't matter what performance arena i'm in and, and craig you know you're spot on um in so far as it's a lot of different arenas but across the elite military um and medicine and high performance sport and corporate and the nice thing i think about working in so many of those different performance arenas is i get to see the similarities that run as the almost that continuum of horizontal across human beings that sits underneath all of that so it doesn't matter what someone's performance arena is generally the stuff that's driving um suboptimal performance in high pressure environments tends to be pretty similar um because as humans you know we've got the same kind of hardware you know we've got the same neurophysiology and we're kind of coded in certain scenarios when we're um when we're under pressure which is fantastic um because it means that um the themes that we see come through seem to hold true no matter what the performance arena is. And I was actually just up in the UK um, presenting um, when you guys were trying to get hold of me um, to the Premier League um, coaching summit. So this is for a lot of the um, top, top coaches. And one of the things I was talking about was this traditional approach that we see across arenas, which is basically, I call it the technical, tactical hope strategy. And what that basically means is people get really focused on on getting very good at the technical part of whatever their thing is. And then the tactics of perhaps a game or if it's, you know, in a in a um, operating room, it's, you know, the, the cohesion and the team movement and those sorts of things. But then there's almost this hope that then it's going to show up in a high pressure environment. Um, and and often if people haven't intentionally and strategically learned how do I how does my body respond in pressure how does my mind respond in pressure what happens to my fine motor control my peripheral vision my auditory awareness my heart rate my breathing patterns my biomechanics you know a lot of those body changes that happen if they haven't actually experienced that and practiced for that then when they're in that performance arena performance starts to fall apart and then mm -hmm. but but they don't know where that's coming from so to your point Trav, they go straight it's believed to be more of a psychological issue you know that that athlete's a choker or they don't know how to handle pressure or they're just not cut out for this arena um when actually it's a highly trainable skill i think some people are naturally good at it you know let's say on a, on a team maybe there's 10 percent of people that are just naturally really good at that stuff but i reckon we could get a huge you know probably another 40 to 60 percent of the of the maybe higher than that of the population and that team would be so much better in a pressure environment if they actually trained that skill not to throw any specific uh, teams under the bus, but uh, Travis and I are long-time diehard St. George Dragons fans, and uh, they've been known to be the March, pre the March uh, premieres at times, and there's been a few little choking labels, so hopefully we'll all learn something from this podcast and we'll, we'll forward it to uh, our, our, friends, uh, our friends at the local footy club. Nice. It, it's really interesting. It, it falls into a few things, and um, I guess in you know the military... There's a few of those like old colloquial sayings, and, and it's one that I um I actually heard you speak about recently. So the one that I would often hear about is that you know train hard, fight easy type concept about training preparation and uh, being being ready for when you need to do the the job. 
um, in, in actuality. Uh, the great one that I heard was, you know, lots of people expect to, to be able to rise to the challenge, but they often fall back to their training. Um, mm. And so it's just that, that idea of performance, of, of realizing why, um, you know, people who are able to, uh, you know, with great repetition, perform a skill with really high success. And then once the, once the environment changes and once the, the pressure is on, that's when they find those issues, not mm. unlike our football team in September. So, and, and I know you've spoken about this and, and I think it was actually, it sounded like it was quite a, um, uh, quite a, uh, a formula, uh, you know, somewhat of what formulated your, your path to this was your own personal experience about performing, um, you know, elite gymnastics a, a, as, a, as an adolescent, essentially, and, and finding that despite all the training and all the repetition and, you know, getting the, the conventional uh, yeah. uh, coaching, you, you're finding you're having a lot of issues with a specific move. Is that, is that the sort of story yes. that led you towards yeah, this? Yes, spot on. Great, great recall. So, yeah, it was a move that I would do to get onto the beam. Um, and as gymnasts, the beam is usually the, the event that we're most nervous about competing because it's 10 centimetres wide. It's quite high. The margin of error is, is there's almost no margin of error to make a mistake. If you're a little bit off with your balance, you're on the ground. And if you fall off the beam, it's enough of a penalty that you can go from gold medal position to the bottom third of the of the event. So then you're basically just hoping everybody else makes a mistake. You're only, it's, a, it's a horrible way to come into sport, but it's effectively the only way you're going to do well. Um, so I had this move that I would start, and I'd and I'd um, it was back when I was competing, which was in the mid nineties. Um, it was ranked the one of the hardest. Um, mounts onto the beam back then it's still actually ranked as one of the hardest mounts these days even even though it's been you know a couple of decades of, of difficulty evolution um but it was basically a blind entry somersault backwards um to land on one leg so so you know my lead up just, I just run the into standard the, stuff just the standard stuff that you do on a saturday morning absolutely um so so i'd usually start off you know about three or four meters back from the beam salute to the judge align myself at the end of the beam, kind of tumble forward, land on a springboard, now with my back to the beam, somersault backwards and land on this, you know, 10 centimetre wide piece of wood. And if, if it was training, I'd land it 10 out of 10, no problem. If it was competition, it didn't really matter, 10 out of 10, no problem. If it was a big event, though, I would somehow just be a little bit off with my timing and my balance. And before I knew it, I'd be on the ground. Um, and I couldn't tell you exactly what was different about what was going on um, and it cost me the chance to compete for a medal at Commonwealth Games um, so it had a significant impact um, I was a really good competitor so it wasn't like I wasn't a good competitor and this was just a, a, a common thing there was just this one particular move and I couldn't crack it I worked with sports psychologists you know I visualized I did the right positive self-talk you know the self-talk did start you know don't fall off the beam don't fall off the beam don't fall <laughs> didn't work so well I evolved to stay on the you know what if I stay on the beam but I still that still didn't or the, the, the classic I'd start to use you can do this you know you know you can do it you know that positive where we actually end up bullshitting ourselves um, and mm -hmm. our brain knows we're lying to ourselves so that's a whole nother topic in terms of self-talk in pressure situations but I never cracked it and um you know you have the sting of, of not doing so well in, in a major event um and you move on um and it wasn't until many years later when I was actually a qualified physio and I understood biomechanics and I understood um you know timing and how the body works and those sorts of things and then when I understood breathing and then when I understood what happens to breathing in terms of the physiological stress response so our sympathetic nervous system or a fight and flight nervous system as we commonly refer to it as a significant part of what changes to our breathing in those environments is where we breathe to um, and and obviously ideally at rest 
as a as a upright human, we want to be breathing with our diaphragm in and out through our nose about 12, 14 times in a minute. Um, very calm, effortless pattern with pretty much no upper chest movement at all. We want the expiratory phase to about to be about twice as long as the inspiratory, and then there should be a little pause at the end of the breath. That's a normal sort of optimal tidal, what we call a tidal breathing pattern. With exercise, one of the first things that we do is we start to breathe upper chest. So our brain goes, I'm going to, you know, I need more air, and we'll start to use all the muscles that sort of sit across the, our neck and shoulders. So, you know, obviously your listeners are mostly PPs, you know, pec minor, upper trapezius, levator scap, scalene, stenocleidomastoid, all of that sort of upper limb musculature. That's a normal response to exercise. Now, coming back to that primal stress response, that part of that primal stress response, that sympathetic nervous system was usually triggered when we needed to run or fight, but one way or the other, because we were going to need more air, as soon as we're in that pressure environment and our brain perceives as a threat or a danger, our limbic system, which is the emotional control center in our brain, makes us start to breathe with our upper chest because it thinks it's getting us primed for running away from that lion, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we're standing still. So what would happen for me in that environment when I could kind of all put this together was I would practice that skill in a relatively relaxed state from an arousal perspective. You know, yes, there was the toxic environment. There was kind of, is my coach watching me sort of stuff? And it was, you know, it wasn't a great environment to start with, but at least the baseline was relatively neutral. And then when I'd creep up into a slightly higher arousal state, I'd get a subtle change, but not enough that it caused my performance to fall apart. But then when the stakes were really high and my arousal state would ratchet up, you know, even more notches because the consequence of failure started to become quite high. That threat response would actually make me breathe even more shallow and more tense up through my upper body, which meant my whole timing that I you know, had practiced in a relaxed state, my timing was now completely different. So as I would come into the board and I could almost pick it, I knew on the entry as I came into the board that my timing was off and I was going to fall. But by that stage, you can actually do nothing about it. Um, and so that was where I started to put together that link between what happens with um, humans under pressure, what changes in their arousal state, physiological stress response, and how does that change biomechanics? And how does that change timing and situational awareness and fine motor control? And that's the stuff that we often see show up for performers in high pressure situations that they get labeled as chokers, you know, that football player that fumbles the ball, or they misread the field because their peripheral vision shuts off, or they make a really dumb decision because their their smart brain's actually gone offline, you know. Mm. Um, those are sort of performance issues. And you can't just solve that sitting in a psychologist's office you have to have that and, and don't get me wrong a psychologist are, are brilliant absolutely have their place in that but it's almost only one half of the whole solution it's not just head down to body it's also our physiology will also drive our, our thought processes and the arousal state that we end up operating in so you spoke or craig mentioned that whole train hard fight easy sort of philosophy mm. how would you you know obviously you help people with this now how would you replicate this in hindsight, like that pressure? Because, I mean, you can imagine the pressure, I suppose, in the practice room, but how would you replicate that intense pressure in, in a, in a practice environment? And, uh, and coach the, the young gymnast who was struggling to get another beam, what's the, what's the key? <laughs> First, I'd make sure that the coaches were treating them well. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you can, you can go yeah. read some, some uh, reports and independent inquiries into a few in gymnastics and you'll understand that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and this, this, is, this is actually where I think there's a really 
common misconception about performance in high pressure environments is that performance under pressure is actually less about what you do in the moment of pressure and it's everything about what's led into that as in right um and i often talk about this um it's very hard to do it kind of visually um but I often talk about our arousal state almost being like a squiggly line and then there's a red line that's a, a threshold. And the reason that the arousal state we talk about being a squiggly line when it's visual is that there's two parts to our nervous system. You know, there's the, the fight and flight or the sympathetic nervous system and then there's the calm one, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. And they actually have opposite effects on everything. You know, the sympathetic will elevate heart rate, elevate breathing rate and make it Tunnel more vision. tense. Tunnel vision. because we lose our peripheral vision and auditory control, you know, those sorts of things. And then, of course, parasympathetic parasympathetic will have the opposite effect it'll drop the heart rate and you will breathe with our diaphragm if that's what our brain stem knows how to breathe like and there's a whole lot of other things so but we back, we bounce back and forth all the time because of the opposite effects on those and then it's understanding that as modern society our our relative state generally at a physiological level we tend to spend more time in sympathetic drive um, just because we're always on the go there's pressure there's demands there's kids there's deadlines there's phone calls, you know, there's just stuff, you know, and and our, our arousal state at a physiological level doesn't really understand the difference between being in a real environment and thinking about an environment. So you can still be driving to traffic, but you're thinking about your day. And if it's, if you're thinking about the more stressful stuff, then you're priming your sympathetic nervous system all the time or, or more often. And then we talk about having a, a threshold or what I deem like it's a red line, you know, and, and basically everyone's got a threshold. But as long as your arousal state stays, stays below your threshold none of your negative performance stuff will show up you know mm. um but what we often find in our high performance and high high pressure and high stakes type roles and environments is that somebody's squiggly line someone's arousal state is butting right up against their red line before they come into their performance arena and then when you get the normal increase in arousal that happens at go time and that's really normal we want that and it's going to happen and we actually can harness that really well but if there's no buffer in the system between when you're where your start point is and and your your threshold your red line that normal increase in arousal is going to shove you across your red line and then your, your negative performance stuff shows up so yes there's some techniques that you can learn to to use in that pressure moment if you if you know that you've crossed your red line and you need to immediately you know um Craig military term uh, you know immediate action drill it's basically I've, I've, I've got in trouble and I need to get myself out of trouble right now what do I use to do that but the most and, and, and I call those get out of jail cards you know but the most effective get out of jail cards don't end up in jail in the first place so what I mean by that is we try to optimize the human being everything about them so that there's already buffer in the system you know so that when they come into their performance arena and their arousal state goes up the you know, a couple of notches that it inevitably will and we, it has to, it's not going to be to the point that it crosses that person's threshold or that person's red line and performance falls apart. So it's kind of finding this balance all the time between, you know, arousal state threshold. I think, I can't remember if it was Craig or Travis, you mentioned this before about how someone will practice something often over and over and over again at the point that they can then, sometimes they can execute it in their performance arena. But if that's just because of exposure to that thing and they've just got comfortable with it then when we put them into a completely different um, environment or we change things slightly if they actually haven't got intentional skills and strategies to go what is my handling pressure and working with my physiological stress response program that i run you know again it's all just been left to chance so what we'll see is people can handle situations if it's their comfort zone you know if it's the um and i had a firefighter tell me once you know he was 
very calm walking into a structural fire. Didn't bother him at all. But the first time he had to do CPR on a baby, you know, he had the whole sweaty palms and dry mouth and heart palpitations and that sort of stuff, you know, because it was just a very different, it wasn't that he knew how to handle pressure or it wasn't that he knew how to control his arousal state under pressure. He just got really comfortable with structural fires. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I was I was kind of hoping that you just set up fireworks and you'd like... <laughs> You just have to do it under under hyper arousal, but you know Travis and I are quite familiar with. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Johan Hari's work. He he wrote a couple of books. He's he's done one recently around around um, uh, focus and attention deficits. For he's, sure, he's talked about yeah, yeah. addiction and, and all those sort of things, and very much yeah. reflective of how our life we run at a high sympathetic drive and everything in in terms of you know things to things to market towards you are are, are focused towards keeping you engaged, keeping you. Um, you know, alert, and and it's a case of you know rejigging that that um, normality, mm. and you know, despite that we're talking about high pressure sort of situations, it's, it's really reflective across all walks of life, right? It's mm. it's we've we've had lots of conversations with people about mental health, about um, you know exercise and fitness, and just the concept of of allowing some buffering to exist in that system um, is so important, and it's not. And it's not only important in the in the uh, specific uh, environments you're talking about, and it, and it comes back to the fact that whether you're working with, um, you know, elite uh, uh, elite athletes, or whether you are working with people, you know, struggling with, you know, panic and and um, uh, other things. When you were talking about your initial time in in community, there's mm. so many similarities across across all walks. You know, the the firefighter having to deal with the uh, resuscitation of an infant. Um, mm. You know, we've all got within our own spheres of existence, the things that we become comfortable with. And then there's the things that will really set us off. For some people, it's public speaking. For some people, it's, um, you know, certain certain types of activities. Sometimes it's performance, competitions. Um, mm. You know, it's really useful to be able to uh, have a holistic approach to provide that buffer so people are mm. able to, you know, function in, in whatever performance means to them. And this is something I think we've spoken to as well before, Travis. It's like, you know, performance is means a lot of things to a lot of people, you know, whether it's a surgeon needing to operate, whether it's an elite sports person needing to execute, whether it's, you know, one of, you know, Travis's brethren's needing to present at a conference or yourself needing to, to be in that role, you know, finding that, that, um, that control of those systems gives you that capacity to be able to respond when, when, you know, the proverbial hits the fan, right? Oh, look, I tell you, I, I, I do ice bath training and, and not in the, in the kind of Wim Hof, you know, um, bad way that a lot of people would use. Um, not saying when Hof's bad, but the ice bath, you know, ice bath seems to be a bit of a thing at the moment, which is great. Um, but it's fantastic. Um, train. It's, it's, I heard it, this is one of the um, SF guys referred to it as being it's free reps on my nervous system, where I basically get to control, you know, practice on a regular basis, having my nervous system go to red line just from zero to 100, which is often what we experience in a real, you know, immediate urgent threat response type scenario. But then actually be able to work to completely control it, where that is the sole focus of that training session, as opposed to when you are in that real life or death or emergence situation, that the situation that triggered that is actually the thing you have to put attention to, if that makes sense. So I'll train ice bath often, um, and I partly use it also about that thing of doing difficult things. I think it's really important on a regular basis that we're constantly pushing ourselves outside our comfort zone. Um, we live such comfortable lives generally um, in, in Western society that um, I think it's important that we challenge ourselves. And I also won't ask people to do something that I'm not prepared to do. So, I, so there's all those reasons why I do it. 
But I was flying in from um, LA uh, in March, and I, we were two hours out from Sydney. Um, and the you know over over water, and the you know how there's the um, call bell will come on when when someone's trying to call a, the attendants, right? And and airlines have a certain code where one bell might mean one thing, two two means something else, um, and three means emergency um, for this particular airline I was flying. And my gut instinct was funny. It got to one, and I was like. I think this is going to go to three and I have no idea where that, in, that intuition was from but you know it gets to two and I'm like okay and then it goes to three and the and the exit um you know lights start flashing and and the um the air crew were doing breakfast service they're immediately off to the phones very calmly of course um and most passengers don't before this podcast anyway didn't didn't know what that three bells meant you know emergency you know urgent urgent um my immediate response when I heard those three bells was Oh shit! You know we're two hours out of we're two hours out of Sydney. That's not good. And I was like, we're over water. That's not good. And then I was like, oh well, where's the exit? And I was actually, I, you know, it was actually almost that calm, you know. And I think it was that calm because of all of that training in the ice bath meant that I knew how to immediately take control of the arousal state, keep it under control. So that my situation awareness was immediately what's going on, where's the stuff, you know, whatever. Now it ended up obviously I'm I'm here to tell the story, so it turned out to be a false alarm. Um, and it wasn't until well after that, probably about I don't know, thirty minutes later, I think, that that adrenaline dump actually really hit um, about what that had meant um, potentially. Um, didn't need coffee for breakfast. But on that, you know, talk, talking about the general population, I think that's what we're seeing a lot at this time of year, you know, in terms of you think about how much people's um, nervous system has been in overdrive, in synthetic drive for the last few years. One of the biggest triggers for synthetic drive is um, uncertainty and unknown. And again, it's a very primal response, right? It's, it's very from a um, survival thing. We needed to be aware and alert. We didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And in the absence of fact, as a human, we always imagine worst case scenario. If I'm on the, on the savannah in Africa and I hear rustling in the bush, I kind of have to respond as if that's the lion and then work out, oh, it was just the wind, it's not a threat. If I stand beside the bush and I go, oh, it's just the wind, and it actually turned out to be a lion, then I'm in trouble. So we're very high... Um, highly alert to unknown and uncertain and if you think you know March 2020 at a global level there was so much uncertainty normally if there's a major event in life some individuals will go through that but other people have still got a, a, a secure footing on something you know this was actually nobody knew what was going to happen um, and there was all of that and so I think as a, as a society we've been running in a really really high arousal state for a couple of years now and then often what you what you see for people that have been in, in a high-pressure environment for a period of time, um, and Craig, I'm sure you've seen this through the military um, exposure that you've had, is something called parasympathetic backlash, where if you've had someone in sympathetic drive, you know, go, 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 they get to a point where their nervous system goes, you know what, I can't keep doing this anymore. And usually that backlash will happen when the immediate threat is now over. And now it's kind of safe, but I go back in my cave and that's where I'm trying to rebuild all of my reserves and my resources. But how that shows up for people in the modern world is this complete lack of motivation. It's almost like the subconscious put the brake, puts the brakes on the, the human and says, there is no way I'm going to let you feel motivated to go training, motivated to go to the gym. It'd be interesting to see what themes your personal trainers are often being, you know, experiencing with their clients at the moment. That sense of lack of motivation, everything's hard. I'm feeling like I'm dragging my, my butt to the gym, you know, all of that sort of stuff. 
And I think we actually have to, you know, I think it's in some cases it's probably been mislabeled as burnout. Um, I think mm. for some people it's just, hey, I've been pushing really hard and it just with grace and compassion for myself, I actually need to understand that my nervous system needs some some downtime um, and to rest and recover and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, that's one of the big important things at the moment is that rest and recover and um, you know, I know in the fitness industry, going to a lot of conferences, there's, there is a lot on, you know, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system and all that sort of stuff. Mm. What would be the, the simple suggestions to, to people who may be experiencing this, that sort of, uh, those sort of feelings at the moment, apart from jumping into an ice bath, because, uh, I probably don't <laughs> want to be people. doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how many people don't want to do that. Um, Understandably so. Um, you know, you've probably covered all of this in your previous, like the fundamentals. I'd love to come on your podcast and go, there's some really cool, sexy, shiny stuff that works. It's, it's not. It's actually those base fundamentals around sleep, you know, quality nutrition, keeping sugar and alcohol out of your diet as much as possible, you know. Um, we'll get on to, to breathing and where that sits um, in a second. Um, but and, and then just even understanding what's happening with the nervous system sometimes actually really helps. That little bit of education around, hey, this is your nervous system. This is a physiological response. This is really normal. You're not mentally weak. Um, you know, you think about a lot of our doctors that are in, and nursing staff that have been under the pump phenomenally for the last couple of years. And they go, oh, you know, they almost are feeling guilty because they think that they're mentally weak because they've hit this burnout stage when it's not actually that at all. Sometimes having that, giving them permission to understand this is a normal physiological response to what you've been through. And as a consequence of that, it needs some time to recover and repair and, and, and reset and reboot. Um, so I think even, even that is that awareness is actually really important. Um, in terms of breathing and where and how that sits, um, um, you know, the, often people will talk, yeah, like, where do we start with that? Um, often, as you take the big It's just breathing, right? It's, uh, we've yeah, all been right. doing it uh, for several years, at least, hopefully. So true. So true. Back in 2008, I did my master's thesis on optimizing performance in competitive cyclists by um, optimizing breathing. And at the same time, I was, it was mentally uh, very hard. And at the same time, I was doing some training with some dudes who were, um, you know, former special force military, just a lot of combat training, just as, as a physical outlet, really. And 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 one, one of them was like, right, how do you write 50,000 words on breathing? Breathe in, breathe out, don't stop. Like it's six words, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, 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 and literally it is, that ex, it is that extreme. You can get really complex or you can just say breathe out. Um, and the most simple thing, you know, if your people take anything away from this podcast is breathe out. Um, often people here, you know, personal trainers will offer cue their clients breathe. What we actually probably want them to do is breathe out. And there's mm. a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, but a lot of people will breath hold, uh, which isn't awesome. Um, or when they're ex exerting themselves aerobically, they'll put a lot of emphasis on the in-breath, you know, they're sucking for the air and especially if they hit that point where they feel like they can't get air into their chest you know and then they go oh i can't get air in so i've got to breathe in harder and they and they kind of spiral the wrong way hyperventilate so, i suppose yeah and their breath stack so mm. so um basically if you're breathing really well at rest and you're using your diaphragm and you're using the bottom third of your lung which is where you've got the most surface area for gas exchange so it's huge you know we've got about um a third of a a third of a tennis court is the is a surface area within our lungs for oxygen and carbon dioxide out to come in and out of our bloodstream. The majority of that is in the bottom third of our lungs. So because breathing is all about volume and pressure, we actually have to somehow make our lungs bigger to get enough 
pressure change of the air will flow in. So we need to expand the bottom of our lungs and the bottom of our ribcage, and we use our diaphragm predominantly to, to do that. And the diaphragm's like this awesome muscle. It'll just keep going and going and going. doesn't really get tired until you put someone in a, a really extreme environment. Um, so you want breathing to be, to, to be down there. But if someone is um, by default, and what I mean by default is um, breathing is a funny thing that we've got conscious control over. So if I said to both of you, hold your breath, you could do it. If I said, really think about breathing into your belly, you could do it. If you're a mouth breather, I said, shut your mouth, breathe through your nose. You could do that to command. And then as soon as you're distracted by a shiny thing, you revert back to what your brainstem you know, breathing metronome, so to speak, has got you programmed to be. Now, for a whole lot of reasons, um, it might be underlying respiratory issues like, you know, under, underlying asthma. It might be sinus issues. It might, there you go, yep. <laughs> well, no, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure which way this will show Tick. up, but for Tick. me, you're that way. <laughs> this, yeah. this way. Um, the one with the long yeah, hair. The one with the long hair, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, so there's all of those underlying um respiratory issues it can be um broken ribs so we'll see people who have been um either you know combat athletes or trauma if you've had broken ribs and you splint if you've had surgery um if you've got um overactive core and and, and um i want to come back to that because it's really really relevant for your personal trainers um but there can be a whole lot of reasons that someone's breathing pattern goes from being a diaphragmatic pattern at rest to defaulting to be an upper chest breathing pattern so um what might happen if you're splinting through your core all the time, if you've had low back pain for a long time, if you've had something that causes you to lock your core and it forces you into becoming an upper chest breather because it hurts to breathe down into that lower part. Similarly, and this is where breathing in the arousal state control stuff, if you've been in a high pressure environment for a long period of time and you and, and your brain has been cueing, your limbic system keeps cueing upper chest breathing as a response to, you know, that I'm going to exercise, I need more air type scenario. Because the body is always trying to uh, compensate, basically, for what's going on, and, and, and Craig, you'll be able to, you know, you understand all of this much deeper than I will from your world, but there's all, all of the compensation for acid-based balance in our bloodstream because we need to keep that so finely balanced. And if our brain and body goes, oh, you know, right, ideally she should be a diaphragmatic breather, but she's been in these environments where she's been splinting her core and she's been upper chest breathing for quite a period of time. Let's just reprogram and go, this is just the new normal. Because if that's the new normal, then I don't have to put as much energy into compensating for that all the time. I can just run that as my default program. It's, it's more efficient for our body to do that, basically, because we're always looking for efficiencies in the system. So so what we'll see, people that have been, um, you know, I have not seen a, a doctor who breathes well. Um, unless they've actually done specific work on their on their breath, especially hospital-based um, doctors in the ER. Um, and I haven't met anyone in elite military, I'd say probably across the board, um, that, that that's just a default pattern, <laughs> the default pattern, right? Is up, up just breathing pattern. So what happens then, right, is as I said to you at the beginning, um, when we we're talking about breathing, breathing at rest is really easy. And this, if I use this water bottle analogy, maybe we can pull this video in for, you know, for the audit, audit, audit the you know the podcast somehow but basically if this water bottles my lungs and if i'm breathing at rest really well i breathe in i breathe out i breathe in i breathe out it's only about half a liter per breath it's probably about depending on your frame size five and a half to six and a half liters of air in and out of your lungs in a minute it's not very much so you won't notice much but when you exercise the first thing that will start to happen is you start to breathe a bit deeper and then you start to breathe faster and harder. And so with exercise, normally you will start to use your upper chest and you'll revert to mouth breathing, but we want that to still be controlled. 
But you'll go from that, you know, five and a half to six litres of air in a minute to our elite male athletes who are relatively large frame. They can go up to anywhere from 180 to 220, 230 litres of air in and out of their lungs mm. in a minute. So that's a huge change, right? So what that means is as long as you're breathing really well at rest, you've then got your upper chest capacity to, to, to move into and your mouth to revert to to shift the air harder and faster and get all of that expansion. But if you're already starting as someone who's sitting in a chair in the, at the office, you know, you're, you're hunched over your office and you're doing computers or whatever, as Craig sits up, upright in his chair, um, but then if you're already in your upper chest to start with, but it's still subtle, you're still just doing a half a litre and, you know, your five and a half or your six litres in a minute, you won't notice any inefficiencies at rest because you've still got the lung capacity to handle that. But then when you start to push harder and faster and it's like, now I really need bigger, deeper breaths and you try to breathe deeper and harder and faster, you basically get to the top of the water bottle where you're sucking for air and all the muscles are trying to contract and create a volume mm. change to get the air to come in. But it's like there's physically no no more space in the lungs for the air to come in and the muscles are already in such a short range that they can't respond to trying to pull harder and faster. And so how people experience that is they get this shortness of breath with exertion or activity where they just, they feel like they can't breathe in enough. They can't get air into their chest. Um, and often we'll see these, this is how I ended up in this, in the very first instance 20 years ago in um, private practice, was often these people would go to their GP and say, I get shortness of breath when I do exercise. Um, and sometimes I get a cough and sometimes I get a sore throat. And there's the next layer of questioning there is, is it harder to breathe in or is it harder to breathe out? Because there's some critical differences between is it asthma or is it this breathing dysfunction stuff? So that's why I was saying to you, um, Travis, about with the best cure is actually in that scenario to actually get someone to breathe out. Because mm -hmm. if, if this water bottle was full of water, and this is not rocket science, right? But if this water bottle is full of water, can I put more water in there? And the answer is no, right? But if that water bottle is full of water, and I had a little, you know, 250 ml cup of water and I said, okay, Craig, you know, this water has to end up in that bottle, but that's full. What would you do to what's in the bottle? Mm. You'd tip it out, right? You'd, you'd empty it to make space. And our lungs are exactly the same. So that's why when we're pushing with exertion, we want to focus on the out breath because we want to make space for that next breath of air to actually come into our chest. Does that, does that make some sense? Yeah. So with the out breath, would you be focusing then on slower longer exhales is it faster harder exhales when, when you're obviously ex exercising this is mm. is there a particular type of breath on that out on the out phase um, it's more about coming to first principles right and so because the the rate and the rhythm and the ratio is going to be determined by the level of exertion so if you're just cruising so if you're just sort of doing a warm-up jog um then the control is going to be relatively easy and it will be you're aiming for that longer controlled out breath what we want though is we want you to use a purse lip breath shape if you just breathe with a big wide open mouth like like which we often see with athletes when they're starting to exert that open mouth will actually create um, um, your upper airways to spasm including your vocal cords and and if the vocal cords spasm it, it, it's even harder to get the air across it's something called vocal cord dysfunction um, and it's harder to get all of that big volume of air in and out of your lungs when you use that purse lip shape 
and it's hard to obviously um, get that across in, in audio. Um, but it's almost like you're blowing on a hot coffee or something like that, yeah. right? Is is that it creates a positive airways pressure that actually splints the vocal cords in the upper airways open, which means that you know that 170 liters of air can move through a bigger tube, so it's easier to get it down into the lungs because the air can only get it, the oxygen can only get into our bloodstream and the carbon dioxide out of our bloodstream when it gets right down into the what's called the alveoli, so right down into the ends of our lungs, basically. It's not just about moving the air up and down through the tube that goes from our nose down in the middle of our, our chest. No gas exchange can happen there. So we need it to be slower and we need it to be longer, but we want that, that pursed lip shape. The in-breath, I'm not really too worried about how that kind of happens. It kind of will do what it's going to do. But first principles, you want the expiratory phase um, at rest. You want the expiratory phase or the out-breath to be about one and a half to two times as long as the in-breath. With exercise, it's going to start to become more of a one-to-one -one ratio. What you never want to have happen is you never want the inspiratory or the in-breath to become longer than the expiratory because once you hit that point, it's really inefficient, tachypnotic shift, then your heart rate jacks, your lactic profile goes through the roof and it's not a sustainable workload. You'll have an athlete almost terminate peak, peak workload within about 10 seconds once they hit that shift of in-breath is longer than out-breath because it's not, it's not sustainable. So out breath longer, put the, you know, if, it, if, if I've just done a sprint and I've been relatively holding my breath for the sprint, which sometimes happens, you have 10 second sprint, you're probably going to be quite bright. It's going to be hard and loud and noisy and I want to really get that air out of my chest. If it's a sustained longer, hey, I need to hold pace over 5Ks, um, then it's going to be more of a, but I'm pushing for that out breath. It's really interesting. I know um, I've heard you actually speak about validating that experience in a study when you were observing athletes and you actually were able to predict as soon as those, as soon as that uh, inspiration expiration ratio got to one and above one longer inspiration expiration, you'd pick that they were about to call it. They would abort their, you yeah. know, their maximal efforts uh, yep. on cue. So it's, it's really interesting to know that that's, that's the, that's very much the red line sort of philosophy, right? Yeah. Um, the other really interesting thing, Oh, sorry, sorry go. No, I was just going to say it's really interesting with that when you've then got athletes who are working in a time-based sport. So let's say swimmers, for example, um, where they might be doing something on repeats, where they might have, you know, once they hit what's called main step, which is basically the working part of their training session, they might be doing things where they might be doing hundreds, and then they've got, you know, ten seconds on the wall, and they have to go again, for example. Um, I mean, in a, in a PT space, this is interval training, right? Yeah, 100%. Yep, 100%. Is that once someone hits that point of, you know, I'm breathing right at the top of my lungs and I'm struggling to get the air in, then usually what will happen is if, if I have to keep doing the thing because um, it's a time-based challenge, then the only option I have is to actually back off my work capacity, my intensity, mm -hmm. so that my depth of breath can, you know, I've got room in the water bottle, so to speak, to give myself enough air in and air out for that lower level of activity. So what you'll see is someone who, um, and we said this is, you know, with running based, um, this might happen, help your football team, um, but you'll often see them where they will have to back off. They can't run as hard. They can't recover as fast after sprints. Uh, um, you know, they look more fatigued than what they actually are, all of those things. Um, but then what we get with with what you're saying with um, um the interval training and you know, often like gym-based training, right, is coming back to biomechanics now with breathing, is if you've got someone who is by default an upper chest breather at rest, they sit all day subtly breathing with their upper chest, using what we call accessory breathing muscles, those muscles that we just talked about earlier. Those are normal skeletal muscles in terms of fiber type. 
So they fatigue very quickly. They're not built to do 20,000 contractions in a day. And that's about how many breaths we take. The diaphragm is a fiber type designed to handle that so it doesn't get tired. But if you're breathing subtly up the chest, that's a lot of contractions through all of those muscles. So, so those muscles before someone even starts a training session are often fatigued and they're often tight. Um, pec minor in terms of putting my physio hat back on, um, a lot of rotator cuff shoulder impingement stuff, internally rotated shoulder driven by tight pec minor because it pulls the um, shoulder girdle into internal rotation. Now, I often laugh when I see people doing their three sets of 10 external rotation with the TheraBand, you know, and it's like, if you understood that there's another layer, you know, i.e. with breathing, if you're doing 20,000 contractions with pec minor pulling you into internal rotation, those 30 external rotation sets are not mm. going to give you the benefit that you really want. You're actually better off working on your breathing pattern. Does that make sense? Um, and, and look, it's helpful to do it. But So, so coming back to that, so then you've got a, a sport. Let's say you're doing you know, ground, to, ground to overhead with dumbbells or and there's a running component. So you've got someone who's already gassed and then you throw in some sort of upper limb strength component to that and their brain is like, well, Trevor, do you want me to breathe? Or do you want me to create, create stability and movement with those dumbbells? Because you want me to use the same muscles to do two completely different things, and I can't put those two together. So again, those athletes will experience a, like a real breathlessness or real difficulty whenever it's those sorts of movement patterns or movement combinations where they're trying to put those two things together. We see the same in military where it's, you know, if you've got an, um, an athlete who might be an athlete, got an operator who's um, looking at, you know, firearm accuracy, um, and if they're practicing shooting in a static scenario, that's going to be very different than what happens to them when they're gassed because they've actually had to run for the last three kilometers with, you know, 20 kilos and on, on their back and all their gear. And then they need to actually, you know, and their upper chest is heaving because they are trying to breathe harder and faster. But now they actually need to create all of that stability and, and you know, they need to basically hold their upper chest still to get their accuracy of their firearm for what they call their sight picture they have to hold their if they don't, don't have good breath control they'll try to hold their breath just to get their firearm accuracy which then jacks their heart rate which then starts to mean that they lose a lot of their performance situational awareness because their um, arousal state starts to get out of control and those sorts of things so talking about you know how do we take that stuff in, in those real performance arenas right elite military into someone who's just turning up in a hit class it's exactly the same philosophy around understanding that biomechanics of what happens to breathing mechanics um with exercise what muscles do you use to to do that are those muscles already short tight and overloaded before we've then got them to do that thing and then how do we get them to coordinate and up all the movement um, with um, you know, with breathing at the same time, and that's why often personal trainers will see their clients if they're in a hip class doing something overhead, holding their breath because they're trying to put the effort into doing the thing. Mm. Not, but now I need to take a breath. So now then I've got my ten seconds of rest and I put my weights down. <laughs> now I'm really gassed because I'm trying to recover for that forty-five seconds because you held breath. Working breath because I held my breath. Um, so if you've got, and that's where just teaching someone just to breathe out um, is not going to be as effective as if they've actually got better default breathing mechanics right from the get-go so that they were coming into that class already a diaphragmatic breather as their natural pattern without thinking about it so that all of this was already rested and then I've you know bottom of the water bottle to start with and then I've got my top to, to use when I'm doing my exertion um, so to me that's the real difference between breath work and inverted commas versus breathing mechanics and understanding true breathing from a respiratory physiology respiratory biomechanics perspective complete that completely different things one's just trying to optimize on the top of something um if you've already got a crappy diet 
you know, a couple of vitamins every morning is not going to take, it might take the edge off your crappy diet, but you're actually better off cleaning up your, cleaning out your diet first. And then those multivitamins are going to optimize um, something that's already pretty awesome. It's so interesting to sort of, and it, it sort of all comes back around to where we started and on how your pathway went from, you know, conventional sports physiotherapy through to this process of, of a more holistic approach. And, you know, even, even when I'm trying to explain sort of anatomical things to 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 my patients and, and people that I'm working with, we get a lot of upper body issues and, and just the understanding of, you know, the the upper limb is only really connected to the the only bony connection of your arm is through your collarbone, right? So everything yeah. else is all muscularly controlled. And and that kind of blows your mind a little bit when you realize that your shoulder blade just kind of floats in a <laughs> in a bunch of muscles. Yeah. And and we and so even that concept is is quite um quite interesting to think about it that you know your skeletal your skeletal connections is is through this sort of tiny joint on the front of your collarbone yes but but then coming back to you don't really think about what's what's that actually secured to what what's what's the foundation there and it's that chest wall and and it's it's not as a even me having having had a little bit more holistic understanding you don't come back to thinking about that foundation of those biomechanics, that entire upper limb is all going to function off those chest wall muscles and, and they yeah. all work within one another. So it, it's not at all surprising that as you've sort of gone down your pathway, rather than just looking at people doing their, you know, rotator cuff strengthening or their, you know, scapular control exercises, which is, you know, very much my bread and butter is, is actually including that into what is a functional human. And yeah. all of a sudden realizing that these this this uh this massive massive part of it sort of becomes somewhat of a black hole for for what we're working with and, it, and it's just so so crucial um i know travis has uh listened to the um the book breath by is it james, james. Nester. Nester. Yeah. yeah and i've i've been working through it as well and, and ironically as you've said you've never seen a doctor who breathes well as i'm listening to it i'm like oh i need to try and breathe through my nose yeah <laughs> listening to it while i'm driving and you know, while I'm walking the dog, and you're trying to really focus on doing these things. Oh, now I need to breathe less, and oh, now I need to focus on this and like that. And I was like, I can all of a sudden see how someone could definitely write a very, very long thesis about breathing because it yeah. is it is really just a a black hole in terms of of uh, you know listening to that book, you know, discussing with you, thinking about these things holistically. It's it's not well you know it, it is really an opportunity to optimize things and yeah we don't realize how important it is i guess an, an anecdote well, it's that, something so yeah so um so natural yeah, yeah yeah like you, no one thinks about it right and so yeah. it's like you, everyone can do it so I, yeah. I would why, i would probably yeah i'll probably say fuss? and and it's funny because i pushed back so hard on being known as the breathing lady because i'm like oh seriously like it's just so boring you know it really is you yeah. know it's um and um and oh, I have people that come in at 50 and 60 and 80 and, you know, in the old clinics and they'd be like, oh, but I don't need to learn to breathe. I'm still alive and I've been doing it, you know, just fine up until this point. Um, but that's that, that's that magic, hey, between it being default and being it not. And to your point, Craig, that you're exactly right, actually, thinking about it retrospectively. That was literally the bridge between me going, I'm I'm treating in the sports clinic, I'm treating shoulder in, in elite swimmers and basketballers and upper limb athletes. I'm doing a lot of shoulder impingement stuff, you know, um, rotator cuff, bursitis, just crappy mechanics. In my breathing, and I didn't even look at 
breathing mechanics in them. I was doing the classic, you know, what did you get taught at physio school, how to treat a shoulder? That was what I was doing. And then over in the breathing clinic, I'd see someone who they've come in with some sort of symptoms related to breathing dysfunction, whether that be, you know, unusual shortness of breath or, um, you know, some of those other things that we described or burnout or panic attacks or stress or, you know, whatever that sort of presentation was. And it wasn't until I was, you know, I'd do my history and I might even say to the person who was in the breathing clinic, have you got, you know, have you got any other issues going on? Oh, yeah, you know, I've got a shoulder, bit of a shoulder issue. But even then it didn't, the light bulb didn't go off, you know what I mean? Or if I was seeing my physio clinic, um, sometimes, especially in New Zealand back in those days, you didn't have long with your patients to take history. So the patient didn't necessarily think, and I didn't necessarily think to ask, what else is going on broader in your medical um, picture that you might not think is relevant and related to your shoulder? But it is from it is for me and how, and how I look at you as a whole human. Um, and if they said to me, "Oh yeah, I also get some some weird breath," you know, classic with swimmers, right? They often have. Um, I see a lot of our national team swimmers for breathing related stuff and or just straightforward performance gains because um, we can optimize performance so well in terms of that not just fixing broken, creating awesome. Um, because if you can take an athlete, they might not have any symptoms showing up, but they are less than efficient because of everything we've just described about that link between arousal state, you know, fear and pressure, now plus biomechanics, now plus performance. Um, you, you make huge performance gains even for people that don't think that they have symptoms or issues with their breathing. It's really kind of a cool space. But there was that, something I was like, oh my goodness, this is the, these are the, the athletes and patients that are falling through that hole because I'm not treating that impingement shoulder looking at their breathing mechanics. And I'm not, do you, do you know what I mean? I'm not looking at the fact that there might actually be some other physical stuff that's causing this physiological, um, you know, stress response, stress response in that, you know, 40 year old housewife who's having panic attacks. Um, and that was where that, that real combination came through. And I think, I mean, humans are fascinating, aren't they? Like you go, because there's the biomechanics, there's the physical side of them, then there's the emotional side of them, and then there's the, the nervous system side of it. And, you know, it's easy to reteach someone to breathe. Um, it's actually really easy to retrain someone's default breathing pattern. The magic and the challenge to that is working out what caused their breathing pattern to go wrong in the first place. Because if you don't address that, you know, if that person is still going into a very toxic work environment or if they are still, you know, they've got some sort of unresolved back pain or they've got, you know, whatever the, the thing that triggered their breathing pattern to go AWOL in the first place, if that is actually not, if they're not taught to optimise some of that, and that's all that front-loading work that we're talking about um, in terms of pressure, um, then the symptoms are going to keep showing up. If you've got a headache, mm. you're banging your head against a brick wall and you take a couple of Panadol and your headache goes away, but you keep banging your head on a brick wall, a headache's going to keep coming back. It's not It's not rocket science. The magic in the work that I do that I love in terms of the magic and what I love about it um, is that there's no... Um, it's, there's no formula to it, you know, because it, it, humans are all so different. And that's where, the, that's where the, the fun is, is working out what's going on behind the scenes because it's usually multiple things. And those things are usually all woven in, in on, all woven in on themselves, which is why it's really nice to have that real um, hard science background about biomechanics and physio and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, a little bit of psychotherapy and then all this arousal state stuff um, in terms of physiological stretch response it allows that all of those quite complex things to be woven in. I call it optimizing the gray, you know, mm. finding all those. It's, it's so interesting because it, I've had this discussion as well as like, as a, as a junior in the hard sciences, you're very dismissive of a lot of that sort of airy fairy sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, you sort of discount it as, you know, it's, that's, you know, that's all just, you know, 
sideline peripheral things don't really need to pay too much attention to it yeah. and you know as you as you go on and as you develop your own life experience and understand and realize there's maybe a bit more to this picture and you know the older you get the less you know sort of phenomenon mm-hmm. um and and you know similarly as travis loves to to point out that doctors are, are not without flaws occasionally um i really? um, you're not god yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know well apparently apparently not um i um I worked next door to a psychologist in my day-to-day practice for a long time and, you know, ended up being a relatively high-stress environment at different times and we were always sorting out other people's problems and, you know, she would constantly give me a hard time as I'm walking back in the afternoon with, like, a Red Bull or my thousandth coffee in the context of having young kids and running out of sleep and all this sort of stuff and then occasionally going out on a, on a social activity and, you know, uh, you know, Self-medicating. Getting, getting less getting less sleep even so and she would she would constantly be at me she's like you, you're gonna you're gonna fry your nervous system you're pushing it too hard and and you know from this conversation the irony of the you know the psychologist who's very much into the softer arts pushing me on the physiology essentially saying that yeah you know, if you keep if you keep stimulating things and working harder you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get to a point that you're gonna hit that brick wall and, and things mm. are gonna happen and, and the funny thing is, is as I've developed and gotten a bit more holistic and tried to, you know, play uh, rugby league into my early 30s, I've sort of acknowledged the need to be a bit more holistic. You know, I've, I've taken up yoga practice myself and, and, and had that at, at variable levels and, and, and realizing that the, the, the way to handling as, as that general level of activation gets increased and the, the nervous system keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And it's really realizing it's not you know, reaching for another Red Bull, it's actually giving yourself the the opportunity to step back and, and take some time for yourself and doing something mm-hmm. like a meditation, like a, a yoga practice, finding that sort of flow state, mindful sort of activities is sort of so important to, to down-regulate that sort of excessive stress response. And it's just so interesting how we, we keep sort of coming back to this. You know, one of the recent um, episodes we recorded you know, we were speaking to a, a, um, a guy in the US who focuses on managing back pain. And we were like, okay, what's the first thing you do when you've got someone coming in who's, you know, gone through a large number of, you know, seen everyone, nothing gets better, nothing works. That, that's sort of a, that's sort of a person. And he goes, oh, the first thing we just work on their breath. And we hadn't prepared it. We hadn't discussed it. We weren't expecting that answer. And we're like, it, it, it's so amazing how, how things will, will come back to this holistic of, you know, focus on, you know, controlling your level of arousal, focus on finding opportunities to get yourself into that sort of flow state, focus mm. on opportunities of, of balancing out the nervous system. And, you know, we look back as, as for me, as a sort of a healthy and, you know, I would have been so dismissive of this 10 to 15 years ago. And now it's, it's kind of the, the bedrock of, of how you actually get people feeling better. And, and mm. it's the people that we're able to get to pursue these things and, and integrate this holistic approach that you actually see the best results from. Well, I think especially when you go, and this is where I think breath work in some ways has given breathing a bad name because people will automatically pigeon that as a, as a crystal waving airy fairy technique. Mm. And it's like, well, first of all, you wouldn't be alive if you didn't breathe. So it's quite important for staying alive. It is literally the line between being dead and alive. And it's probably the thing in our body that we've got the most alarm systems around to go as soon as our brainstem perceives that we're breathing different than what we, sorry, as soon as we're consciously aware that we're breathing different than how our brainstem pattern wants to keep us alive, nothing else matters until we get that sorted out. You know, it's, it's kind of like um, if you're hungry, you can deal with that until you can get some food. You might get a bit hangry, but you can go for 
weeks without food, you know. Um, if you need to go to the toilet, as most adults can do, you can probably hold on until it's appropriate to go. So you've got the ability to override some of those other body functions. Mm. Your tolerance to when you're breathing is different than what your brainstem says it should be is, you know, seconds. It's about 30 seconds before. And that's why a lot of people struggle. If their default breathing pattern is upper chest and then they lie down in a yoga class or a meditation class or they try to do some mindfulness and they diaphragmatically breathe, that actually triggers panic and, and um that response in some people because it's so different from what their brainstem thinks that they need to be breathing to stay alive if that makes sense but i think you know it's and i often even walk into i often find it funny when and that's the, what i said before about pushing back on being known as the breathing person because people automatically pigeon that they go oh do you teach us yoga or meditation or mindfulness i'm like this is a kick-ass high performance skill that is going to because of the biomechanics side of it because of the neurophysiology side of it like those are those are hard science pieces do you know what i mean like yeah. that's that's not soft well, science well it's the There's realization a lot of stuff that drives that, into it yeah but the Sorry, realization yeah. that the benefit of so many of those things of doing something that you are enjoying that sort of flow it probably comes back to that that breath control, which is making a huge amount of the benefits of these things that we mm. we know they have objective benefits. Yeah, and you know you, they're not even, sold as it being the foundation of the, the breath aspects. No, and even if you think you know with back pain, right, and you think well, the yeah. diaphragm actually attaches onto the lumbar spine. It's a spinal stabilizer, and so for people with back pain, they will often they'll, they'll brace their diaphragm because they don't actually want to have movement through their through their lumbar spine. And so that's part of the reason. And then the diaphragms and spasm, and that's going to cause a lot of pain too. So it's not just that we teach them breathing because we want to teach them relaxation, if that makes sense, or a stress response technique. There's actually a real biomechanical aspect to what we've got going on with that. Um, in terms of the core strength, I, I, I touched on um, before, Travis, I said I would come back to that. Um, what I often see with... Um, clients if they come in they've been doing some, some gym work I see and other athletes is if you think about the obliques and rectus abdominis patch onto the lower six ribs so if we have those muscles braced like because we're doing that you know core strength stuff right and we lock that in it's very hard you can do it even get you know your listeners can do that this at home as they listen to this but if you brace your abs as hard as you can and now try to diaphragmatically breathe you can feel that you actually can't do that because it's got opposite effects, right? Mm. Can you feel that? If you break yeah. your abs really hard, you can't expand through there. So people often get taught core training um, and they will hold their breath while they are actually doing the thing, which means that they're not training functional core strength. You know, if you're a football player and you're 68 minutes into a hard game and you need to breathe and you need to be breathing well and your core strength, you only know, well, I have to have my core strength on by bracing everything. Again, it's going to push their breathing right up into their upper chest if they need their core strength. So it's really critical that when people are training core strength, they're doing it in a way that's, first of all, it's layered, that they know how to use. It's like it's not an all or nothing with core. There's mood lighting depending on what's going on, what they need it for in their in their environment, their functional environment, but also that they're, that they're putting um, optimal breathing at the same time as they're doing their core strength. So it translates into functional use for them, not just that was a nice way to fill five minutes for class, but it doesn't give me any functional benefit through my day. Now, we've probably got maybe 10 minutes before we look to sign off. I feel like this is going to be a stupid question based on some of the stuff that you've said earlier around A, not just being the breath lady and B, you've got to look at all the other aspects. But so far, you know, you really, you've touched on the importance of having to breathe out um, whilst exercising specifically. So that that's one important aspect. 
as a trainer, if we've got someone who's coming to us with some of these other issues potentially, what are some things that we can send them home with homework wise to help them on their breathing if, you know, when they're not with us for that 23 hours of a day? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of these things that we can maybe send them away with? Obviously knowing we're not going to know their full picture. You're still banging the head against the wall situation, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. And obviously putting that caveat around, you know, me not giving medical advice, you know, what I mean? in terms of from a prescriptive, go do this thing so that you haven't got people that are, you know, trying to think, oh, I'll give this and they miss, you know, some yeah, underlying course, yeah, yeah. condition. Right. So, um, so bearing all of that in mind. Um, one of the really simple things is um, getting someone just to lie flat on their back is a really good place to, to start with retraining breathing pattern, breathe the diaphragmatic awareness, yeah. because it takes gravity out of the picture. And it usually ends up keeping their upper chest rel- relatively uh, still. Um, I'll get someone to to put both hands on their upper chest, get them to do a big inhale. As they exhale, push down on their upper chest and then close their mouth. And the reason we do that inhale, exhale, where it's upper chest and with that, that overpressure, with that breath out, is basically emptying the top of the water bottle. We want to get rid of all of that air that they've been holding onto with their upper chest. So we just get them to exhale. Um, and then hold that pressure. And then what you want them to do is to try to breathe in and out through their nose um, after that first breath in and out through their nose where their diaphragm or their belly, so the upper abdomen will just rise really gently. And it's usually for about a, a second or so, and then very rhythmical into the breath out. And then there's a little pause at the end of the out breath before they take the next breath in. Now it needs to be rhythmical. It's not a force. And when people first try it, often they'll use their tummy muscles to to push their belly if they're not comfortable and used to doing that. First principles of um, rate and rhythm is that, again, you want the out-breath to be about one and a half to two times as long as the in-breath and then a pause at the end of the out-breath. Now, what we're not looking for, and this is where people have mistaken this with breathing for relaxation or mindfulness, is that then they'll, they'll think, oh, it's got to be six seconds in, hold for six seconds, out for six seconds, you know, that sort of forced breathing. That is not what we would call a normal functional um, tidal breathing pattern that somebody could be sitting in their office doing automatically or as they're driving to work or, you know, their day-to-day stuff. That's not a normal breathing pattern, okay? So what we're looking for with that lying down one is can we start to retrain the brainstem to go, oh, how do I breathe in a more functional way where I'm keeping my upper chest still and I'm using my my abdomen to, to do the breath in and the breath out. Now, what will typically happen with that is if someone's an upper chest breather, they might get four or five breaths into that and they start to get a feeling of air hunger. Like, I need to breathe in longer. I need to move my upper chest. This doesn't feel good. You know, that's that mm. fight between brainstem and cerebellum and a whole lot of other sort of complex things happening in the brain. So if someone gets to that point, they take a break until they take a few breaths until they feel comfortable. Start with that full exhale back into that rhythm and so what you're looking for is to go on and off and on and off the rhythm for about 10 minutes eventually someone will get to the point that they can hold that rhythm and rate comfortably for 10 minutes but that can be a four to six week process of someone doing that every day right because that's the retraining of the brainstem Mm. stuff that has to happen the most important thing is that they actually tell people that it, it can feel quite uncomfortable when they do it and that's where there's a little bit of danger and just kind of going you know being starting to bridge into some of those other worlds about really knowing what's going on in terms of physiology mm. and from a medical perspective. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. But then I'm not we'll sure if Travis, oh, sorry. Sorry, you know, you go. No, no you finish your, uh, finish your thought. I was just going to say on that, I think that's, that's, that's generally in terms of retraining 
awareness of diaphragmatic breathing where we where we start now the other thing i'll get people to do then is a little habit breaker where every time they pick up their phone to do anything through the day they think three things to themselves stop drop and flow but stop just means stop what you're thinking about and become present because so often we just you know we rush through our day and it's almost like our body is the thing that carries our head around right so the stop part just means become really present but still keep doing what you're doing the drop part is drop your chest and shoulders and breathe out because we won't realize how much we've just got our shoulders popped up a little bit no matter what we're doing there's that tension and often people will be holding their breath without realizing that they're doing it especially if they're concentrating on something so the breath out and then the flow part is just three breaths to their belly trying to use the same rhythm that they were training lying down but now it's just in an upright position. And this is where they'll start to find it's harder, especially if they're braced through their core through their day, which a lot of people do hold tension through their core through their day. Um, it's harder to, to get that. And again, it's not big exaggerated breaths. It's got to just be that awareness of, oh, I've just dropped it down into my into my diaphragm and then I carry on with what I'm doing. So if I stop at the traffic lights, um, not that you're going to pick up your phone at the traffic lights, but that's a, at stopping at the traffic lights is another great Some kind of like habit cue. Yeah. A habit cue, exactly. And something that you're going to do multiple times is that that starts to put that into a functional everyday life and it starts to break the habit of those 20,000 breaths. But if you do only that one and you haven't done that lying down, actually resetting the brainstem pattern, you're going to keep reverting back to your brainstem. So the, the habit breaker will be helpful, but it won't be really beneficial. I can possibly, I don't know, I can possibly send these those those two things through to you guys if if you if it's helpful, put those in show notes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Craig, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that uh, I don't know if Travis realizes that he is in, in fact a uh, an expert at uh, at breath awareness. Um, Travis has been doing uh, jujitsu for quite a few years, and one of the favorite things he likes to demonstrate to other people such as myself who are a bit earlier in their jujitsu ex experience is the discomfort of being squished. I've learned, so I learned a new trick last night as well, actually. Yeah, it's one of his favourite things is is yeah. to be in a position, which I know I've heard you speak about this before as well, is to make people uncomfortable and make mistakes because they get into a situation where often lying on their back, restricted, once they get a bit of pressure and restriction on their chest wall, all of a sudden, they can't get, especially if, um, like, you know, the younger bucks here, I might not look it, but I am the younger brother, um, you know, maybe are overexerting themselves and trying a bit too hard, which is, you know, a key to getting injured and running into trouble and not making friends. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a case of you're working hard, you're breathing hard, and then all of a sudden you get, um, you know, some big bopper who's deciding to demonstrate the the effect of a squish. You, you, you become of very aware of you become very aware of how uncomfortable it is to have your chest restricted. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Travis has been out there educating, educating the masses for, for years now. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. And that's that volume pressure thing, right? Is that if you, if your rib cage can't expand somewhere and that's where you're used to breathing, because often, you know, because uh, Travis, you're an upper chest breather arrest, right? And so when you get really gassed and normally if someone's pinning you in BJJ, where are they pinning you? They're normally mm. pinning you upper chest, right? They're not normally pinning you down on your lower your lower part of your ribcage. Yeah, yeah. But the cool thing with those sorts of, you know, with, with grappling is you get to work out, okay, well, if I just slow my breath down and I'm aware and present, there is actually somewhere in my ribcage that will move. Right. If I can generate a volume change somewhere, you know, yeah, you might have my upper chest 
squished, but actually my side, the side part of my rib cage can move. Or um, if you're positioned in another position, you can actually, um, you know, you, you can move, actually expand to breathe into your back, into the posterior part of your rib cage, right? If you can get some movement there, you can still breathe. Um, we do the same with guys that are carrying heavy loads over time, you know, chest plates, things like that, that naturally cause compression through the, through the upper chest. They have to breathe somewhere else to get airflow with certain positions that people get into in sports, rest positions, those sorts of things. There's a reason that we get players on field, um, you know, when they get a rest in a game, um, whether it be, you know, balls out of play or whatever, is, is actually bend over, put their hands on their knees, straight back though, and heads up. So you've got to keep heads up, you know, to get that eye gaze up so you've still got the awareness. And there's usually inevitably a little bit of pushback by the head coach to say, I don't want my players with their hands on their knees and because it looks bad and mm. and from a body language perspective. And I'm like, well, would you rather it looks bad, but they win the game or they look amazing, but they haven't got enough gas in the tank in the last 10 minutes of the game. And so they get they get beaten. You know, either their arousal state control goes through the roof or they just literally get to that point where their breathing is so inefficient that they've got less power to their legs and they've got less gas in their lungs and they can't keep going so inevitably it's a it's an argument that we can win um and it makes a huge change and i actually had feedback from a player who who um used to play for another nrl club and then um was working with a club that i've been working with um and he said oh he said we, we were watching the um watching this you know on field playing this game and we saw it like, like whatever halfway through the first half we saw the the guys all down hands on mm -hmm. hands on knees and you know and we were like awesome we've got them you know um which is a great mind trick as well because inevitably when the team thinks that they can't start to get pressure off right and then he goes and it was awful he goes because we thought yeah we've got them and we were just like we, that little bit of cockiness started to creep in the next minute when the whistle went they were on their feet and just they just took off and, and they had us on the back foot right from the get-go so two things one is the psychological component of that and two you've just used your rest period really really well because mm -hmm. often players you know they'll stand on their field hands on their heads want to do those big upper death breaths right which biomechanically makes no sense from a breathing perspective when actually you want to lean yourself forward so your gut can hang away from your diaphragm so everything can expand really well yeah. so even if you've only got time for two or three breaths they've been really efficient in terms of that water bottle analogy of clearance but also being able to drop your heart rate by a few breaths and then beats a minute which you can do very easily with great breath control so that you've actually got that and it won't show up in a in you know the first 60 minutes of the game but i tell you what you want that little bit of edge in the last five minutes of a really intense game that came was coming down to the wire i feel so validated because i had a blow up with uh with a coach uh in the most recent season i played for the same sort of reason of oh no hands on no hands on uh you know nice. get, get your hands on your head you know up straight and i was like look i'm i'm you know, I know the the tripoding position that we talk about in medicine is when you <laughs> see someone who's really struggling, and often it's an asthmatic or an emphysemic or something yeah. like that. They yeah. they tripod up, and that's the best position to to try and compensate for their for their chest issues. Yeah. And I I'm I'm a proponent for the hands on <laughs> knees for the recovery. Um, and yeah, the coaches used to slam us. It's like, oh, you know, you're you're so hard. Like if you're up like this, and you're and you're you're um. Uh, you know, your core's all stretched out. You you can only breathe up into your chest. Like it's, 100%. I feel very validated. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to have well to done. share this link. Please, please, please do. And in that position that, you know, they, they rest their, they rest their accessory muscles too, which they will be using as the, you know, because they're exerting hard. Um, but, you know, and, and it's funny, isn't it? What we're talking about with that persolate breathing with the exhale, that's an old COPD technique as well. You know, emphysematous yeah. patients work that out themselves. And if they create a positive airways pressure, 
it's easier to get the air out of their out of their chest. We just hijack and we use some of those techniques that people have actually just worked out um, works really well for them. Now, none of that is crystal waving, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. that's real, that's real hard science um, stuff. But we use that same position, like for guys on the bench, right? For guys who are sitting on bench waiting to go on field or on court is if they sit leaning back in a chair, which they'll, you know, they often do if they're not thinking about it, you know, legs out straight, leaning back, arms crossed. The only place they can breathe to is in their upper chest, which isn't great for recovery. So we get them sitting forward, knees apart, elbows on knees. You know, again, heads up, they're totally engaged in the game, but they've just let their diaphragm, their gut, you know, the abdominals, their gut intestines drop away from their diaphragm so they can breathe really well. Half it's funny time, because when you're thing. super gassed, when you're super gassed, you, you basically naturally do that. Like, your natural thing is to go hands on knees and like probably not head up, but your your natural yeah. thing is to lean forward. And then like what Craig said, everyone tells you, no, no, open your chest up, get everything open. And it's it's interesting because I, it's not something I'd ever thought about before, right? Like because I've always heard that that no no hands on knees. And when you said the hands on knees, that's immediately the first thing I thought was was yeah. was like, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. And it's the, the, the question I love in performance is the why question, you know, because often people regurgitate the thing, right? And it's like, yeah, but why are you doing that? You know, and if you don't have a really good understanding as to the why, you know, so that head coach, Craig, it was like, no, no, hands on head, lift up. If you'd actually said, okay, what, why? What, what are you actually trying to do with that? You know, the box breathing is another thing and, 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 it, and it gets regurgitated around all of the performance circles because that's what the Navy SEALs did. And it's like, it, actually, they didn't. You know, when the SEALs were actually working on the most efficient breath control timing and whatever for lowering heart rate, and they were doing some stuff around firearm accuracy, the strategy that is the most effective for controlling heart rate and dropping heart and, and um, optimizing heart rate variability is doing four minutes where you breathe in for four seconds, out for six seconds. Maybe a little bit of a uh, pause at the end of the out breath, but it's, you know, four seconds in, six seconds out, diaphragmatic, nose for four minutes. That's the scientific validated one. The box breathing came from a former seal who basically was, was sort of commercializing some some things and needed a needed a shiny strategy, like you know, things. that like sounded good. good. Like all good things. In for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. Um, or tactical breathing, as it's often called. And I don't know many guys that actually use that well, you know, um, in terms of um, it's a great circuit breaker, which I think is where it's effective because it has people at least stop and think about a something which pulls them right. out of the panic moment. But I don't know that there's a mammal on the planet that holds its breath at the top, you know, especially in when you're under exertion. If you're running hard and fast or you're really pushing exertion, um, and you try to hold your breath for four seconds at the top of it, that actually is a stressor into the nervous system more than mm. it's actually beneficial. Um, but again, it's, that takes understanding, you know, respiratory mechanics, respiratory physiology, and the, the kind of the why, rather than the, oh, that's just because that's what everybody else does argument that doesn't kind of fly so well. Um, yeah. We'll have to correct you on uh, one little thing. It wasn't the uh, head coach. It was the only coach. I'm very much <laughs> It was the father, the father of the of the captain, the was, father of the captain, yeah, the father of the captain. I was the I was the fourth shot substitute, so yeah. Oh bless, oh bless, yeah, absolutely. So maybe don't go hard at him with the why question. <laughs> All right, Rachel, I want to say thank you so so much for your time today. It's been pleasure. an absolute pleasure. There's been yeah. lots of good stuff. Uh, we'll get some some of that stuff for the show notes. For but sure. apart from that, if people want to. Um, dive into some of your other stuff where's the best place to to 
see what you're about and see what you do? Sure. I have two websites, breathingandperformance.com, which is currently down because I'm just revamping that. So so that will be, you know, watch this space. Um, but rachelvickery.com on the resources page, um, there's a bunch of other things there at the moment that, you know, people can go and get, learn, learn a little bit more. Uh, really happy for people to drop me a line and email too. So very, very accessible. Um, yep. LinkedIn is, uh, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn, but, you know, Facebook, Insta, classics. Yep, perfect. Beautiful. Thank you guys for having me on. I, I hope it was worth it. Worth the eight. I think was it been eight months that we've been trying to do this. I hope it's been <laughs> it's worth the right. wait. <laughs> yeah, we've been, been, been working at it, working at it for a while, and and the yeah. little we'll have to do the little teaser that uh, Travis's jujitsu class. If they listen to the end, they'll find the the way to squish proof themselves um, <laughs> through the through the tips we've learned off uh, today's podcast. It's been great. Nice, nice. Thanks, uh, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much. Pleasure. See ya. Thank you for listening. If you liked this show, share it with your friends, subscribe on iTunes, and leave us a five-star review. For show notes and free training on how to grow your fitness business, visit www.fitnesseducationonline.com.au. Are you a fitness professional looking to provide your clients with personalized meal plans? Check out Mealsy, the ultimate solution for creating custom meal plans in just a few simple clicks. With Mealsy, you can say goodbye to countless hours spent on meal planning. Our Australian meal planning web app is designed to save you time and effort so you can focus on what really matters, your clients and their success. Mealsy provides you with a vast library of recipes all created by nutrition professionals. From breakfast to dinner and everything in between, we've got you covered. Whether you want to create a custom meal plan tailored to your client's needs or choose from our selection of ready-made meal plans, Mealsy has the flexibility to accommodate your preferences. So why waste precious time and energy creating meal plans from scratch? Let Mealsy do the heavy lifting for you while you focus on delivering exceptional fitness services. Join the community of fitness professionals who have revolutionized their business with Mealsy. Visit our website at www.mealsy.com and sign up today. Mealsy, the smarter way to meal plan for fitness professionals.